Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you people, so it rained in Burbank today and I wake up at like 6.30 and I look at my app and there's 95% humidity out here. Now, you know, I grew up back east and I've been out in Burbank for 14 years. We never used to get this humidity, but 98% humidity is like when I grew up in New Jersey and you would sit there and you'd walk down the street and you'd sweat your ass off. Or I remember sitting there when you would get out of the shower and then you'd have to dry off because if you didn't have the air conditioning on, I mean, put it this way, it was so humidity, my hair frizzed and and I'm bald. So my guest though, I believe he knows humidity because my guest is from Houston originally and now Houston is very, very humid, right? My guest is Brett Collin. How you doing, Brett? I'm good. Thank you very much. Yeah, Houston generally has 98% humidity every day, every night, all the time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, when I was in college, I used to go out and start my car and then run to my house and take a shower and then get dressed and walk to my car. And the 20 feet it took to get to my car, I was already wet. Isn't that the worst? I mean, yeah. you sit there, you go, okay, I'm, especially if like, you had a date, right? I used to do stand-up comedy, so I'm going to a show. And the last thing you want to do is show up and you get to your car and you have, you, you're, you're perspiring. Then you finally you get in the car, you put the air conditioning on, you drive to the club. And let's say you're playing a club in Philadelphia, you're, you have to park a few blocks away. And then you walk and you walk in like you're a mess and people are like, oh, we can't watch this guy. He's just, he's like some hack who's just crapping himself. That's why you show up an hour early and yeah. dry off. <laughs> <laughs> now you grew up in Houston. Now, now at what point in your life, as a kid, did you want to act? Because I know, were your parents involved in the oil business or? or... Yeah, my, my father's family is a, a very prolific they were considered one of the four rich oil families okay. in Texas, in Houston. Uh, the Cullen family, they built the University of Houston. They um, have a street named after them, which the University of Houston is built on. And um, no, they none of them were the arts. My mother, as a young woman, did... Um, Pull the mic a little, yeah. It's just pull the mic away a little. Up, up, up a little. Up a little bit. No, towards you. Towards me. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Yeah, okay. I was getting kind of weirdly. So, right. so your mom was. My mom sang um, opera, and was with the Civic Light Opera, and she performed once, and it so terrified her that she would never do it again. And um, I think when I was in high school, I was a baseball player and a surfer. Is everything okay? Yeah, no, I, I, I looked like something. I, I just checked monitors. No, we're fine. Yeah, because yeah. it's going to in and out in my ear. Okay, let's um, take that. We're going to go without headphones. We don't need them. All right. Let's go without headphones. So, yeah, I um, I had, in, back in those days, you did a four-year plan in high school. And my mother, because I was not a good student, uh, didn't care about school. I cared about baseball and surfing on the Gulf Coast of Texas. She put me in drum because there was no homework. Okay. <laughs> so, Who would my, have thought years I later? Know, I know. So my senior year, I as a joke, uh, I was dared by these two very pretty girls that were visiting my high school. Uh, I, t- I had to take them around. I was with the student council because we'd had a riot, and they made me an honorary member of the student council at my high school because we had no air conditioning in August. Um, in Houston? Yeah. Okay. And the kids and the water fountains weren't working. And so the students just, we didn't riot. No one just went to class. They just stood outside and smoked cigarettes and went, you know, screw this. And so I was an honorary member of the student council, and I took these two girls around from another school, and basically they dared me to audition for this play. It was J.B., a play in verse by Archibald McLeach. It was a one-act play competition. And so I went, yeah, I'll do it. And I went up there and made fun of all the actors, you know, and overacted. Oh, God, yeah, you know, it's just horrible. <laughs> and I got the lead. <laughs> so See, that's usually how it happens. Like, when you sit there, I, so many people said, you know, you, you, first of all, everyone always does it for the girl and that every every young actor i don't care what they say i mean everyone goes okay well i played sports but man all these hot actors all these girls were acting it's like there's something that gravitates you well the the other thing is there's a you know i have all these friends on facebook or that i grew up with that i haven't seen in 30 years and um probably today if we met we wouldn't be friends right because we grew up together and this one girl said that she remembers me because we lived right in front of my elementary school. I went to Samuel Clark Red Elementary on Tonawanda Drive, right across the street from my house. And I was standing out there in my baseball uniform because I was, I was a, I have a friend who, Chuck Lamar, who was the uh, GM for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays um, when Lou Pinello was there. And he actually told uh, me that I was, well, actually he told John Havlicek, which blew my mind. While I was standing there, that I was the most twelve-year-old, most talented twelve-year-old baseball player he's ever seen in his career. Wow, I was a pitcher. And uh, anyway, this girl said I was standing outside of, of Red Elementary one day, and she said I turned to her and said, "You know, one day I'm going to be an actor." 
which I have no memory of. <laughs> That's one of those folklore. I know. But so anyway, <laughs> I did the I did the play, and then I graduated high school, and I came out to California for three months to serve. And my oldest brother Lucian called me midway through the summer because I applied to three colleges, I think A and M, University of Texas, and University of Houston. And he called up and said, uh, he tracked me down and said, look, uh, I, I know it sounds shocking, but you actually got into a university because <laughs> I, you know, I may be a, a C minus average. I did very well on my SAT. I was a smart kid. I just didn't care. Right. And, um, he said, do you want to go to school? And I went, well, I guess everyone else is. And he goes, well, you know, you were really good in that play. I mean, you enjoyed that. So why don't you take drama? There's a man there named Cecil Pickett, who's sort of a big deal. And I've already spoken to him. And I said, drama. And of course, being an athlete, I right. said, well, isn't everyone gay in drama? Especially back, I mean, especially in that <laughs> this day. This is 1974. Yeah. Okay. And I go, well, if I don't like it, can I change majors or am I stuck? He goes, no, you can change your major anytime you want. So I went, okay. <laughs> so he signed me up. He went to Cecil and Cecil gave him everything I should do. So sort of like my mother did when I was in high school. And I uh, went to college and it was back then it was more of a commuter school. It was more local, but the people that came out of that school at that time were people like, you know, Rand, well, I, when I went there, Dennis was there, Dennis Quaid, Randy Quaid, Brent Spiner, Tommy Schlamme, Tommy Toon. I mean, different people studied with Cecil, Mark Masterson, who's the artistic director of South Coast Repertory, <clears throat> who I did Shakespeare with. Um, but that's where it all began. And uh, I went, I mean, Dennis loves to tell the story because he's one of my oldest friends. This is the first time he saw me on Fridays. They had a thing called the red mask players that you had to go to if you're a drama major. <laughs> and I had no idea what it was. It was basically a lab. Okay. So I show up and I, I went surfing and I was like in flip flops and a surf trunks <laughs> and a t-shirt and my hair was down to my ass because I used to have really, really long hair. And Dennis always described to me that way, you know, the first time he ever saw me. And I walk up to him because he looked like the only straight guy I could see. <laughs> and I said, hey, dude, uh, what, what is this? And he goes, it's it's the lab. Uh, you you have to be a, a drama major. And I said, I'm a drama major. And he goes, you are? And I went, yeah. And he went, oh. And he said, him and Cecil both said they'd give me three months. They thought I'd be out. And I stuck it out. And that's where my... The foundation for my uh, craft came from was Cecil Pickett, was Stanislavski and Uta Hagen. And then um, uh, the great story was about my third year, and I was doing a lot of plays. I was and getting a lot of roles, but I was scared shitless because I thought, how, how do you do this? How do you make a living doing this? So I went to Pickett, Mr. Pickett, Mr. Pickett, everyone called him Mr. Pickett. I went to Mr. Pickett and I knocked on his door and said, I mean, there's two stories about him that are brilliant. One was after my first year, I auditioned for Hot Out Baltimore and I should have gotten the lead because it was Paul and it was me. It was like this sort of hippie dude. And I went to him and I got a small role in the play and said, I have to ask you a question because I was an athlete. I, I didn't think the way theater files did, you know, that whole, <laughs> right. You know, I went in and I said, look, I'm going to school here. I thought I did a really great audition and I'm curious now that the play's over, I want to ask you what I did wrong in my audition or how I can be better next time. And he looked at me and he said, close the door. And he said, had I, it's the only time he'd ever cast a play without sleeping on it. He said, had I slept on it, you would have played Paul. And I said, well, look, I want to do this, but I'm scared. I don't know. I, I'm used to coaches. I'm used to people kicking my ass and I need help. And he said, well, I will mentor you if you do what I tell you. And you have to be the first person to volunteer when there's an exercise, have your scene ready before everyone else, you know, do the, do the work. So I became that guy. And then the third year I went to him and he was my mentor. And I said, Mr. Pickett, I'm, I'm thinking about dropping out of school. Why would just, you were just, I was scared. Okay. And I said, I'm going to go to Europe, maybe backpack for a few months and just kind of find myself. And he said, excuse me. <laughs> I said, I want to, I'm just, you know, I, I just, he goes, Brad, you're going to go to Europe and then you're going to come back here and the problems you're scared of are going to be in your backyard just like they are right now. So you're not dropping out of school. <laughs> he had such a, a power over all of us. I went, oh, okay, I'll stay. <laughs> and I did. Thank God he was right. Cause it was just fear, you know, which so many actors let sort of envelop them and overtake their, their passion for the craft. And, um, he taught me to let that go. 
how did you go about letting that go? I mean, what was your certain techniques? Like he said, did he, is it, it's not like it's a, I'm not sure it's not like a game plan where you go, okay, like if you want to work on your hitting swing right. or if you pitch and you're like, okay, well, here's the deal. You're pulling this, pull, get into the cage, bring your yeah. arm in. But for acting, or drop your right shoulder. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. and you can, you, that's tangible. You can see it. But for in your psyche, people can say stuff like people can go, oh yeah, I listen to Tony Robbins, but they're not going to sit there and they don't, they may not listen. I mean, they, right. how did he, how did he go about that? Well, what he taught me was to focus on the craft, not to focus on getting the job. And I teach as well now. I teach privately and I do like, you know, two day intensives. Like I was just in Atlanta and I did one there and I did one the year before. And I taught at the University of Houston, the graduate students. And I, you know, I go back to the school because I'm committed to that school because of what it gave me. Um, One of the things that he taught us was to focus on the craft, but what also being an athlete, it, my training kicked in from sports that also made me go, look, if you, I knew I wasn't the best actor. I know I was a decent looking guy. And I mean, my early career, that's probably why I got some of the roles I got because I was young and good looking and could walk and talk because in television, that's all they wanted. Um, at that time, you know, like it was Falcon Crest and some of those shows that I did, but what I did learn as I've gone through the process of, of this 37 years or 38 years of working in Hollywood was I understood that people go in and I, in my early career, I used to go in and I'd worry about getting the job until I would go back and look at what I was taught. And I would realize, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to stretch myself. So I would focus on working my ass off. Like my wife says, I'm the hardest working guy she's ever known. Cause if I have an audition, if I have to go read for something, I mean, I'll be up till three or four in the morning, even if it's a 10 o'clock appointment, I don't care. I'll get sleep later. And I work on it. So I know that, I know, I know the scenes. I know my intentions. I know from A through Z, how I can play this different ways, but I know how I want to do it. And what I teach students as well. And what I understood eventually was that I don't audition and they always go, what do you mean? You don't audition. I go, I don't, I perform. And there's a difference. When I walk in the room, I show them how I want to play the role. And if they want to hire me, how I should do it. And if they have another idea, they can stop me. And I tell them to, if you don't like what I'm doing, please stop me, direct me. And you know, I'll give you what you're looking for. But inevitably that's what it comes down to is, is that you're so prepared and you've worked so hard at it. And the, the unknowables that are out there, you know, whether you look like the director's ex-husband or you know you got the wrong color eyebrows whatever it may be that why you don't get a role but if you don't do all of the work to prepare yourself then why are you here why are you doing the job and that's what cecil taught me was to always do your homework so he taught you all that and now you graduate now you sit there and you still i mean still i'm sure you were getting over that fear but you probably still have the fear because it's not something that changes the drop of the hat no that 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 fear sort of grew over the years through my knowledge and through what i watched and i mean the great i was at a period there's been three times i wanted to quit where i really thought fuck this i'm gonna go do something else you know i'm at that age i still can and inevitably there was one time where i did everything i went to acting classes i went to cold reading classes i was doing everything i can't get arrested i mean what's going on and i had a, a mortgage and i was like scared and I finally had this audition for this miniseries, um, Gambler 5 with Kenny Rogers. It was about the Wild Bunch. And I was going in to read for either Butch or Sundance. And I went, you know what? Screw this. I, I didn't even look at it. I didn't do anything. I mean, this is how stupid the business is. So I went in and I I knew the AD and I talked to him. He was there. There was a the production company. And so I went in and Jack Bender was directing and uh, Larry Levinson was producing. And I sat down and, and they looked at me and they said, all right, you know, and I had these cold readings classes. So I had looked at it while I was sitting there. So I kind of was familiar with it and I just read, I didn't perform. I just read and I, and I didn't really care. I was like, screw it. I'm not getting this part. It's not going to happen. I'm not getting hired anytime. I, I'm, I'm maybe my career's over. And then they looked at me and they said, can you ride? No. Yeah. They said, no, really. Can you ride? And I said, look, I rodeo. I used to rodeo. I was a team roper. I was a healer. I was a guy that roped the back feet. I know how to ride a horse. Okay. You know, I wasn't nice about it either. I was like, are you kidding? And they went, I'm okay. not full of shit. Just yeah. listen to me. I've been around. <laughs> right. I'm from Texas. He said, I know how to fucking ride. And they went, okay. And I went, great. Nice meeting you. Stood up and I walked out of the room. Got in the car driving home and I get a phone call. Well, you've got an offer. And I was like, what? So the, the, the stupidity of how this business works sometimes is, is funny. But 
the idea is unless you prepare, unless you are fully prepared when you walk in that room to engage them, to talk about the script, to talk about your character, and to ask them questions that are pertinent and really know how to back that up, you're not going to get the part problem. Now, you said there's three times you thought you were going to quit. Mm-hmm. What were the other two times? Well, early in my I went through a really rough period. I mean, I... I we'll talk about it if you don't. No, it was just the 80s. All right, that's all you have to say, believe me. <laughs> the 80s, sorry. The 80s was a bad period. Yeah. I mean, I worked some and I did stuff, but my agent kept saying, wait till you're in your 30s, man. That's when it's going to happen. Bob Gersh at the time. And I was like, all right, all right, right. And then I got to the 30s and all of a sudden they were back to the 40s. And then when I was in the 40s, they were back to the 20s. So uh, I just kept working, but... I was fortunate. I'm blessed. I'm really lucky. Trust me. I mean, I never sit here and go, I am so good. You know, I know how good I am and how hard I work, but I also know there's actors out there. I mean, there's an actor I got hired who's a friend of Kathleen Wilhoit's who you've had on your show, uh, John Philbin, who's a wonderful surfer, but I got him hired on this little indie movie I did with Xander Berkeley. Um, what's the name of that thing now? I can't even remember the name of it. Um, it's about the spiders. On, oh, the killing jar. Okay. Uh, and I told the director, I said, you should hire this guy to play the gas station attendant who's the red you think may be the killer. And I would go to dailies just to watch him because he's so good. And like, I look at John and I'm just like, this guy is so unreal and so talented and he doesn't get that much work. And I wish he would, because I really, I, I, I would go to dailies to watch him. Even dailies, I, you know, I would go, no, it's John. You know, I want to go see the dailies tonight because he's so good. And the director even said that, who wasn't that, he wasn't that skilled or, or that, um, uh, it was his first film. So, but th- there's that. I mean, I don't think of myself as like, wow, you know, right. look at me. I'm like, wow, look how lucky I am. And that's the other thing is that, you know, humility is a wonderful thing. And I always tell actors, I go, you know, if you're an asshole, people don't want to work with you. So try to be smart, try to be helpful. You know, a director goes into a film or a television show like he's going into war. And he wants to know he has soldiers on his side. You know, if you're a prick, right? Like he's going, wow, I got to deal with this guy as well as fighting with the producer. Shot by your own fighting with, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the three times was, it was an interesting thing. It was the 80s. There was uh, the time I just mentioned. And then the, the last time was my daughter was in school and she was going to a parochial school, private school in Venice. And I had gone through some stuff where my father had passed and uh, I just... Uh, the market shrunk, 9-11, all that, all that stuff that happened back then. And I was hurting financially. And I thought, Jesus, this is it? I mean, have I got that point where no one really wants to hire me? And um, I'm not a real religious man. I believe I died when I was 16, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But So I went to my daughter's school, and there's a chapel there. It's where she was baptized when she was in, I think, second grade. First time they ever did it during school hours. And I sat down in the church and I looked up and, you know, I basically talked out loud, you know, to God. I said, look, you know, I'm a bad guy. I I don't come to church. I I don't, you know, I pray when I need you, whatever, but I'm in trouble. And I said, "Um, if you'll help me, I'll be a better Christian. I'll come to church every Sunday. And I got up and walked out. I thought, okay. I went that route, see what happens. The next day, I got a huge job. I mean, just out of the blue. What job? I can't even tell you what it was, but it, it so, saved my ass. Okay. So I started going to church every Sunday. I mean, I'd be in Montana fly fishing. i go find a church. I was in New Zealand shooting a show, and I was surfing, and I'd find a church. People were laughing at me like, are you going to fucking church, mate? <laughs> I go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to find a church. And then uh, that, that church that I went to all the time in Venice, they eventually, I used to direct a play for them every year. and um, we had a difference of opinion and they kind of came at me and I just went, you know what? That's not the Christian thing to do. So I quit going. I mean, I'm still very spiritual, but those are the three times in my life that I had serious questions about whether I should continue. And I tell people those stories and I go, you know, there are going to be times that, that the valleys are deeper than the hills that you've been living on. And it's going to be scary. And sometimes you can't see the sun. But the sun does come out, and you can still get there. And, you know, I'm 59 now. I just turned 59 this month. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. And you have and, great hair. Huh? 
Huh? You have great hair. Like like most people going like almost uh, 59. Their hair is going. You people, this guy has, I mean, it's kind of hair that pisses you off. Like if you're bald like me. <laughs> like when I was in college, I had good hair. I had long hair, but I didn't have like, like if you have, look up Brett Collins, just image him. And he's just got the hair where he can put his hands through and it just hangs down. It's like, like you are like every, every bald guy must see you on the street and go, Damn you, Brett Cullen. Yeah, fuck you, Cullen. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm blessed with that, I guess. I'm, I'm probably from my mother's side. But, uh, you know, I I always, people say, well, you don't look 59 either. And I go, well, you, you look around my eyes, you see it. But it, I think surfing, because I've surfed my whole life, and I still surf. And I travel around the world, like, you know, this show in South Africa, and I went and surfed Jeffrey's Bay, where that guy was almost hit by that shark. Did you right. see that? Yeah, yeah. Same place, super tubes. And, you know, that keeps me young. And it also keeps me sane, you know, those, those days when you're like, right. All I do is grab my board, run down to Venice beach, jump in the water. And the first wave that washes over me as I'm paddling out, all that stuff goes away. Do you book jobs sometimes just to surf? Like if someone said, here's, well, loss was great because I got to, you know, be in Hawaii and they sometimes would call me up and say, all right, you got to come in on Tuesday. You're going to work when, or no, you're flying in Monday. You're going to work Tuesday. And then you're flying home Wednesday. It's just one big scene. And I went, no, I'm going to fly in Monday. <laughs> I'm going to work Tuesday. And then book me out next Monday. And they said, well, Disney doesn't like to do that. You know, ABC Disney. I said, well, what do you mean? They go, I said, it's a first class ticket. Book me out. When I'm finished on Tuesday, you won't see me. The only thing you need to do is have a car pick me up in LA. They went, okay. And I finish and all the drivers were surfers. And I go, hey. Drop me off at the hotel. I'm going to grab my bag. Are you going back to set? Yeah. Can you drop me off at the airport? And I get on a plane, fly to Kauai, go stay with my buddy in Kauai because I've been going there since ni- well, 1980. I shot the Thornbirds in uh, Kauai. And I would go and stay with him and surf. And then the following Monday, I'd book a ticket to fly back to Oahu, get on the plane on American Airlines, and go home. So, yeah, I don't book tickets based on that, but I certainly. You know, what is it? Who who was it said that? You, you look at a script and it's either location or money. Right. <laughs> you know, is there, I know because Gregory Harrison's on the show and he's a big surfer. Right. Is, Greg's is there, a great surfer. Is there like a, a group of you guys that like, do you are you have a camaraderie because you surf? I mean, it's like anything. It's like. Cause if it's, you surf, there's a brotherhood. Okay. I mean, I can go anywhere in the world. I mean, I've surfed uh, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, South Africa. I've surfed, And you run into guys and just because you're a surfer. You have a, a, you know, there's, there's a brotherhood, you know, you're a waterman. So yeah, there is that. And there's a camaraderie, you know, I, I just saw Jeff, uh, I, mean, I just saw, um, uh, I just went blank. Uh, you just mentioned, it. uh, Gregory Harrison, Gregory. I saw Greg at the Emmy, uh, foundation golf tournament and it's just like he he's so funny he's a friend of mine on facebook and he goes we we're after the tournament we're having there was a cocktail thing and a dinner and awards and he looks at me and he goes i gotta tell you you know and i don't mean this in a bad way but you got some weird friends in texas because he, he get, I, i'm very political and i get okay. into political discussions and some of the stuff these people and i go look it's like i told you i said those are friends of mine i grew up with but <laughs> if i met him today <laughs> i don't think i'd be hanging out with him so yeah. Now, now, back from when you were in Houston, when you graduated college, what when did you decide to come to L.A.? And I mean, was it a was it a scary move, or was it did you know people out here? Or no, what happened with me was I went, I graduated. And there's a thing called the URTAs and the TCGs, which is graduating seniors of, of theater departments audition for, and you go through a process. There's like you know local, regional, you know state, and then you end up in finals. And I got the finals in both those programs, and I had to go to Chicago, and I think New York, for the finals. The TCGs I showed, I just just uh, finished with the Robert Bridegroom, which was a musical, and I lost my voice. So I, I, I kind of sucked at that one. And I had about three or four. The TCG is a, a regional repertory theaters around the country that hire people out of college. The, the URTAs is graduate uh, graduate programs all around the country. I had, I think it was 32 schools that wanted to talk to me out of the audition, and which the guy said, this is a record. I, I mean, no one's, and I was like, well, great. And I was just dumbass. And right. so I went to the first school, you know, like Wayne State, all these different schools. Well, this is what we can do. And by about the fourth school, I was like, well, you know, they said they could give me like a full ride. And they, and so I started negotiating. So by like athletes. I, I mean, it's the same thing as yeah. like the athletes. They'll like, give you this, they'll give you that. Yeah. So by the time I got to the last school, it was the very last school, it was Florida State. It was the Oslo State Theater program. Um, and they said, 
I said, oh, you know, and I was kind of, you know, cocky at this point. So what, uh, what can you do? <laughs> the guy looked at me and he said, look, full ride. We guarantee you after two years, you'll have your degree. You'll have your equity card, $5,000 in the bank and a brand new car. And I said, <laughs> at that point I was gaps, gobsmacked. I was like, Whoa, how can you do that? <laughs> he goes, we have these, these women, these old Jewish angels that support our theater that guarantee that for our graduate students the money and the car. And I was like, wow. I said, I'm in. So I was going to go there. I was doing the Shakespeare Festival in Houston at the time. And there was an audition for Urban Cowboy. Now, the backstory of that was my buddy Dennis Quaid was originally going to play that role. And then Travolta's people came in and Paramount asked him to step aside, which he did. And <clears throat> I had to audition for John's best friend, or it would have been Dennis's best friend. I was working in a during the day, because I graduated, I was working. I was doing seismic printing for oil companies, and it was by hand. And there was, you know, you had ink and everything. Right. I had a cowboy shirt on. I didn't wash up. I went to the audition, looking like just like a redneck supposed to look. And I read with John, and I probably one of the best auditions I've ever had. I blew his socks off, and he was so nice. He's like, "Oh my God, that was incredible!" Because he kept looking, and he started turning pages. Thought the scene <laughs> kept going. He said that was incredible, and then I said, "Well, thank you," and I left. There was like twenty people in the room. By the time I got to the parking lot, the casting director found me and said, they want you to come back and read for the Scott Glenn role, which I hadn't prepared and I sucked. And anyway, I didn't get the part. But about two weeks later, uh, my mom called me and said, this man named Bob Lamond uh, wanted to speak to me. She said he was John Travolta's manager. And so I called him and he said, hi, it's Bob. he's a fellow Houstonian, but he lives in Hollywood and he manages. He was back in the 80s. He was or the 70s and the 80s. He was, you know, he had all the men. He had Barry Bostwick. He had... Um, well, John, Gary Sandy, like everyone who was like on anything, he represented. Um, Mickey Rourke, you know, he had everybody. So he said, I want to talk to you about your career. And I said, look, I'm, an, I'm a student. Right. <laughs> I don't have a career. <laughs> and he goes, well, just come have lunch with me. And he convinced me to say, and I told him when I was, you know, I was going to get my graduate school to, to get my degree in linguistics and dialects and uh, stage combat because I was a competitive fencer in college as well. And did a lot of Shakespeare and was always, you know, fight captain. So long and short of it is he convinced me and I had to go to my dad and say, um, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, is he, is he big? Is he a big fella? I mean, is he like big in the business? And I was like, yeah, dad, he is. He handles John Travolta. He goes, oh, he goes, all right, well, you should, you should do it. And I'll support you for a year. So I move out to Hollywood. He gives me my aunt's car who had passed away. It was a big Mercury Marquis, one of those giant boats. Okay. I got my friend Ben Cherry drove out with me. We he told me to get a tan, so I went to La Jolla, and I surfed for two weeks, and then I moved in September 8, 1979, in my, or September 5, 1979, in my apartment on Beechwood Canyon. My rent was $172 a month. Wow. And oh, it, was a, it was an efficiency, you know, like a one room with a kitchen and a bath and a closet. And uh, I, I moved in. The ne I was there for a week. The next week, Bob got me an agent. It was Roe Diamond, a 20th century uh, agency. The next week, I had an audition for a series called The Chisholms because it was a miniseries that they were decided, CBS decided it was going to be a series. And I went and read for it, and um, which goes back to another story. When I was like a junior, I think, or a senior, I came out to L.A. with my girlfriend, Karen Rosen, who was related by marriage to Ed Asner, who I later served on the Screen Actors Guild board with. And we had brunch at his house in Bel Air. And this is like, you know, when he was Lou Grant and all that stuff. Right. And, you know, I didn't say much and he didn't say much to me. And finally, at the end of the day, the end of the brunch, he looks at me and he goes, so, kid, I understand you want to be an actor. I said, yes, sir, I do. He goes, I'm going to give you one bit of advice. Do as much Shakespeare as you can. I went, Shakespeare? I was, I'm doing Shakespeare, but why? And he said, if you can do that shit, this television stuff's easy. <laughs> <laughs> so cut to me reading for the Chisholms and I'm sitting there and Mel Stewart, the director looks at it and looks at my resume. And he goes, this kid's done Shakespeare. He knows the meaning of a word. I like it. And I went to the network, got the job. And I was, you know, three weeks, three weeks, four weeks out. I was in Colorado shooting with Robert Preston, Rosemary Harris, Ben Murphy, Delta Burke played my younger sister, Jimmy Van Patten, Reed Smith, Victoria Racimo and Donald Moffat. And I'm like getting, I think $7,500 a week. And I'm like, pig and shit. I'm just like, oh my God. Right. 
so that's how it started. And then, of course, the 80s happened, and uh, I went through a period of about eight or nine, ten months where I was partying a lot, and I wasn't getting any work because the series only went half a season. And uh, one of those wake-up calls where I called my mom because my dad, I, I wrote a check for my father as soon as I got the series. I said, all right, here's the $2,500 you gave me. He's Isn't gonna, it crazy that could support you back then? That could support you for a year. I mean, you think about it now, it's like twenty five hundred dollars. Well, no, that rent. was just what he gave me to join the union oh, okay. for All my right. apartment. The first, second, and third month, and the money I spent driving out, and you know, just having some cash in my pocket. So I said to him, "Here's your check," and he goes, "This will be in my drawer if you ever need it. It's there for you, right?" So I call home one day after all the partying, and I'd gone through my fifty thousand dollars. I had like three grand in the bank, thinking, "Oh shit, I'm in trouble." So I called, and I got my mom. I says, "Dad, there?" Nope. He's not there. What's up? I went, well, you know that check I gave Dad? <laughs> she said, listen, we can't afford to give you any money. We spent that money. We're not rich. You just made a lot of money. Where is it? I went, well, a lot of it's gone. And she said, well, you need to pull your big boy pants up and put your boots on and get back to work. And so I did. That was sort of one of those wake-up calls that I got. I mean, I love my mom. I'm, 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 I'm my mother's legal guardian now. She's 92 and lives out here in Culver City in assisted living. But that was a blessing to have someone tell me the truth. And, you know, didn't stop the partying, but I cut it way back, went back to class, and then boom, I got two commercials, like a double mint and a Budweiser commercial and a Coke commercial. And, you know, back in those days, you made like 40 grand on the commercial right. in a year. So I also had money coming in. I was like, okay. And then I got a, a pilot and it slowly started building. And um, then Falconcrest. Oh, actually, I got the Thornbirds. I did the Thornbirds. And then um, after that, I got the Falconcrest. And then it just has been like this weird piecemeal kind of interesting career. What's amazing is because you were on Falconcrest. And, like, you know, I, you try to explain to people now, like, how many people watch it. Like, today on the Today Show, me and my girlfriend watch it. Like, Cal Burnett was saying how when she was on Saturday night, 30 million people watched. 30 yeah. million. Falcon Crest was a very popular, popular yeah. show, and even if it wasn't a top, if it wasn't, if it was top, if it wasn't top ten, if it was twelve, there was still fourteen million oh, yeah. watching it. Watching, what was that like? Did you start getting recognized? And because you're a handsome guy with the great hair, people must have been like just tracking you down on the street. Well, they did. Uh, the, that was my first experience with really kind of being recognized, and it, but not, you know, because I live in L.A. and you know L.A. There's there's a thousand or a million of us walking around right. that people go, Oh, there's that, that guy's an actor, you know, and I've had the, except for that show, I've had a really interesting career in the sense that people always meet me and then they go, I, I know you, or did we, you know, I go, yeah, we went to high school together. <laughs> They're like, no, you're too old. But, um, I, I've never been one. I'm one of those guys like, you know, you talked about Xander and, and Chris McDonald and different people who Chris Mulkey, who they go, that guy's, I know that guy from somewhere. You know, and I, you know, my best friend Dennis. Yeah. You know, he walks in. They go, Dennis Quaid's here. You know, with, I walk in. They go, and with this big tall guy, who's the other guy? <laughs> Which is good. I mean, I like the fact that I have that. And even Dennis said to me once, "Because Brett, you're an actor, because I I jump from thing to thing, you know, and I can do television, I can do film, I can play the bad guy, I can play a sympathetic father, and and I've gotten those the chance to do that. And and when you're a movie star, you're kind of stuck in this mode of you have to be the leader. You have to play this really interesting part. You know, I mean, who would have thought, you know, four years ago, if you'd asked me about, um, what's his name? Who won the Oscar for, uh, you know, the Texas actor, uh, McConaughey, McConaughey. If he had won the Oscar, I'd go, you're joking, right? <laughs> but he went and did what most movie stars don't do, which is to jump back and say, you know what? I, I got my fuck you money. I don't need this shit. Find me some good scripts. I don't care what the pay is. I'll work for scale or I'll work for schedule F and did some really interesting work. And then all of a sudden people went, shit, this guy's good. And he proved all of us wrong. You know, I thought he was just a pretty guy, you know, although if I look back on dazed and confused, he right. was fantastic in that. You know, I kept going, why aren't you doing those kind of roles? You know, as opposed to doing, you know, his agents got him doing his studio things that he made eight, nine, 10 million, 12 million, 15 million, who knows? But they weren't very good. And then he went and did some good work, and now he can do whatever he wants. Now, you and Jillian were talking about when you were on Batman. Yeah. Now, that shot in London? Well, it shot in London, Nottingham. Well, it shot in India, London. First, he went to India for a couple of days. Then London, Nottingham. Then they went to Pittsburgh. 
then they went to LA, and then they went back to New York. But you got London. I was London and Nottingham. So that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I had a great time. So what's it like that when you're, I mean, because you've you acted, you've been in tons of projects, but something like that's such a huge budget movie. I mean, was that your first huge budget movie? Or, no, I mean, no. I mean, I, I did, uh, you know, Apollo 13. I did, uh, you know, which back then was a huge budget. It's not what they, you know, when Wall Street took over the studios, it became a whole different game. You know, they want to spend 150 to 200 million on a picture or even more. I mean, I think our budget was 250 million on, on Dark Knight Rises. <clears throat> but, to, you know, I had the opportunity. I mean, I did something to talk about. I worked with Robert Duvall. I did the replacements. I worked with Gene Hackman. What was that like playing? You played a quarterback. Yeah. Now, what is, I mean, you're, you're baseball. Are, are you a football fan? Yeah, big football fan. Who's your, are you, are you a Cowboys fan? I'm a Houston Texans fan. I hate Good. the fucking Cowboys. I'm, I'm an Eagles fan. I hate the Cowboys too. <laughs> I'm tired of Facebook because they came back and beat the Giants. Everyone's like, take that. And I'm like. No, oh, that was just, they, they should not have won that game. That was a fluke. And that I, was they, they just, it was crap. just if Manning had taken the sack or just laid down yeah. 40 seconds off the clock, they would not have scored. Now, what was it like playing a court? I mean, that must be, that. that's like every an actor's. It must be like sort of like a dream where you're playing it, where you're actually playing. A well, my friend was directing Howie Deutsch, uh, who's a dear friend, and which was great. I love working with people I know. Um, Keanu Reeves was one of the, the nicest, smartest guys I've ever met. Really a great guy. Working with Gene Hackman. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he you got to work with Duvall and Hackman. And that's yeah, pretty, that's pretty good uh, company. Well, the interesting thing was, I I remember Gene's last night of shooting, and I was there because I because of what I do and how much I work and, and how much I'm on the road and my schedule is so unpredictable. I can't teach. Like people say, you should teach. And I said, I can't do that. I can't take money from students and then boom, get a job and I'm gone. So I'm always, when I'm working, like particularly with someone like Gene and I did it with Duvall and, and Jenna Rollins, I'd go to set when I wasn't working and I'd watch them work. I'd sit with sound. They'd give me headphones. I'd have a script. I'd watch how they rehearsed. I'd watch how they shot the master, how they do the coverage, how they do the extreme close-ups, you know, how they change their performance based on the lenses that they were working with. And that became, you know, and it is still my school is about learning. I'm, I'm, my whole thing and part of why I think I continue to succeed is that I, my belief is if you stop learning, you die. And as an artist, you, you have to adapt, you have to grow. And if you don't, you're not going to go anywhere, which is why you see a lot of actors who become really hot in TV they have some big hit show and then they disappear forever because they think I'm, I'm hot as shit and I don't have, you know, I want this. I should do movies. You know, it's like, no, man, you should do everything. You should do theater. I've, I've told friends of mine who were on big hit shows. I said, you should leave L.A. for two years, go to New York and just do some off Broadway stuff and then maybe get a Broadway show. And maybe people all of a sudden go, oh, my God, there's a new revelation. And they come back and then all of a sudden they're hot again. But they don't. They stay here because they're addicted to the money. They're addicted to you know, playing that game. But um, with Gene, I was there one night. It was his last night, and all all the all the guys come to say goodbye to him, and they're all going out to dinner and to some club. And I think it was Michael. I said, "What are you doing? Why don't you come with us?" I said, "No, I'm, I'm watching Gene." <laughs> he said, "Why?" And I said, "I I I I can't go to class anymore. I'm never home. And this is my class. I mean, I'm studying one of the greatest actors of our generation." And I saw in his eyes, he kind of went like, oh, shit, I missed that opportunity. And, and they're going, come on, let's go, let's go. We said goodbye. And he, he was like torn. He wanted to stay because he realized what I was saying was right. But he went out. But that's what, really what I used to do with, with uh, you know, Robert and, and Jenna on something to talk about. I just go and hang out, watch them. Because, I, mean, they're, they're, I mean, their craft is phenomenal. I mean, Jenna Rollins, in my mind, is one of the greatest actresses, you know. I mean, the, I was going to go back to something, you know, I, I said it was Cecil Pickett, but one of the other, I mean, Frank Cassaro, Vinette Carroll, I, I worked with so many wonderful people as teachers when I was in the college. They, they brought these great people in. But when I moved to L.A. and I was, I was doing Falcon Press, a friend of mine, William Moses, Billy Moses, got me to, he was in this class. He said, you should study with this woman. I said, who is it? Her, he said, her name's Kim Stanley. And I said, Kim Stanley. And he goes, you know, she's the uh, female version of Marlon Brando. They did all of Tennessee Williams plays on Broadway. You know, it was just incredible. So I went, oh. So I, I had to audition for her, which in, involved me bringing a raincoat. That's all I was required to do. And it was all an improv. Now, what's it like, though? I mean, because you love the craft, but you're on a TV show. And now all of a sudden, they're saying you have to audition for a class. I mean, and yeah. you're younger. Is it something where you 
were excited to do that or were you like oh, wait, I, I should just be able to walk in were, were you sitting there were you I, modded I, I wasn't I, I enjoyed doing Falcon Crest it was good money and enabled me to buy my first house um, but artistically it, it wasn't very challenging I mean the second season I hardly read the scripts I'd show up and go what am I oh I'm doing the love scene oh yeah that's like the last one except oh this line's different you know it's like <laughs> they had it down they, they knew what they were doing and it was fun but it wasn't something where I was every day coming to work. I like to be scared. I like to challenge myself. So Kim challenged me and she became, I, I have my two greatest influences are Cecil Pickett and Kim Stanley, but Kim Stanley, this is, I'm working with the second season. They, uh, Dana Sparks played my love interest the first season. The second season, the producer, Jeff comes to me and he goes, you know, you and Annalise are going to be together next year. So I, I don't know what got into me, but I went to Annalise and I, you know, she'd been on the show what seven years now. And I said, uh, Anna, do you study? <laughs> She's like, well, I said, well, we're going to be working together a lot next year. And she goes, yeah, I go, I'm working with this woman named Kim Stanley, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, well, I said, look, I'm not saying that you need to be in acting class. I'm just saying you, we get into habits, particularly on television where, you know, like I knew I was. And I said, it might just be good just sort of to blow shit out of the water and start kind of fresh. So she went and met with Kim fell in love with her, started studying with her. And she and I, the second season had a blast because she would actually, cause she was sort of the, the powerhouse on the show. You know, the director said, Oh, if you wait a minute, Brett and I are going to rehearse. <laughs> We're going to explore this for a minute, you know? <laughs> and so it became a really cool thing. But I, you know, people said, you asked her to go to an acting class. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I guess I, I could have shot myself in the foot, but she was so gracious and so cool. And so welcoming to say, yeah, I, I, I can grow. So that Kim was probably one of my greatest influences and, and she's a lot like Jenna Rollins, you know, and Duvall and Hackman where she, they're just giants. I mean, did you ever see Francis, the movie, um, about the actress that was put in the insane asylum? Um, uh, what's her name? Played the lead. Um, it's about Francis Farmer. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I know you ever watch it. Kim plays the mother. Okay. And Jessica Lang plays the daughter, and Jessica was her student. Yeah, and so you cool. should see that movie. It's like the work in that is like, oh. Whew. Now with your with your acting, how do you? I mean, how do you go back and forth in roles? Like, you know, in was it was it a Criminal Minds? Is that where you played the the, the preacher, the pimp preacher, yeah. drug dealer? But like, how do you sit there? Like, I mean, and just for the fact that I know, you know, you said earlier, you know, sometimes casting directors will sit there, and if you remind them of someone, this, but you go from, you know playing a nice guy to playing like a role like that do you ever sit there do you ever get looked at differently by casting directors because they're like well wait a second i just saw him on criminal minds and he's just an awful person but we're trying to have him play this nice politician i mean does that ever do you ever run into that or is it are you a chameleon enough where they just sit there and they look at you and because you are taller and you have a distinguished look they sit there and go you know what do they look at you with open, an open mind sometimes well i think most casting directors do because they they know my body of work they know that i've done both I can slip in and out. Um, you know, the, the honest truth is, is that whether you're playing, I mean, that, that was a great comment that Gene said to me, Gene Hackman said to me, when we were doing the replacements because, you know, Martell was, you know, everyone goes, Oh, you play the asshole quarterback, you know, cause he was the union guy <laughs> and they were all scabs. So I went to Gene and I said, look, uh, you've played a lot of bad guys. <laughs> yeah. And I said, do you try and find a gray area? I mean, should I try and find this like so that there's like a more well-rounded sense of this guy or just, he goes, are you kidding? He's a bad guy. Be bad. You know? And I was like, okay, you know, so I, you know, you envelop, you enjoy that aspect of it, but no, I've never had anyone say, you know, he played this, he can't play that. I mean, a, an interesting thing that happened and it happened about I don't know, nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I went to my manager and my agent who I've been with for a long time now. Uh, Melissa Spomer, who's just an amazing agent at Domain, and Steve Lovett, who's been my manager. Um, we separated for a certain period of time and then got back together, which was a very funny story in itself. But I went to him and I said, you guys need to think outside the box. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're letting casting directors cast this movie or this TV show. Let the director and the producer do it. Get me in the room. And they said, well, what do you, they want, I said, that's your job. It's not mine. My job is going there and to prove them wrong. And I can do that, but you have to get me in the room. I mean, and uh, there's a movie I did. <clears throat> um, oh, what's the name of it? With Uma Thurman. And it's a very dark film. It's about a high school shooting. Um, uh, the Life Before Her Eyes. Okay. 
and they said, there's this movie that's shooting in New York, and they want you to put yourself on tape. And my manager said, it's a waste of time, Brett. They're going to hire someone in New York. And I said, well, I'm doing it. So I went and got a friend of mine who's a documentary filmmaker and really did it right. You know, like got his camera and had an actress friend of mine read with me. And we put it on tape. And then I went to Hawaii to do Lost. And then I went to Kauai to see my friend. It was one of those, like, I'm in for a day. And I remember sitting on this beach uh, with my friend Matt. And the phone rings. And my agent said, we were wrong. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, you just got the offer for that movie in New York. And, you know, that was something where I kind of went, you know, you guys weren't thinking outside the box. You have to think outside the box. And now they do. And they're wonderful. I mean, I'm not criticizing them in any way. It's just that's the nature of the business. But once they saw what I could do in a room, what I, how I approach the work and how I approach every audition, they started really embracing that idea. So I haven't really run into any sort of like he who plays bad guys. Um, you know, you, you know, um, and I don't know his name and I should, cause I worked with him on from the earth to the moon, the guy who was in silence of the lambs who played the killer. Oh, um, um, he was also in, um, he was in the bridge. Yeah. And he was in, he was a monk. Yeah. Ed Levine. Yeah. Ed Levine. Yeah. Wonderful fucking actor. Guys. Amazing. But you know, you go from that. I think he may have had some blowback for a few years from playing that role. Oh Yeah. Just the whole, and then, you know, and then you see him and Monk and he's, and he's a good guy, you know? I mean, I, interesting story is I read for Monk for the pilot, for the lead role. As you read for Monk. Cause I mean, there's, there's you guys, you and Anthony Shalhoub are so different. Well, I, I read the script and it was an extremely dark, dark script. And I thought, wow, this would be a cool drama. So I went to the darkest place I could go and like the whole disease and everything and went in and read and they were looking at me like. Um, can you do it again, but do it a little less, um, dark? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay. And I tried it and I left. And then eventually I see the show, you know, and I go, okay. My, my wife's like, we got to watch this. And I watched it and I went, boy, was I off the mark. <laughs> <laughs> and then I later did a guest shot on it. And he's just a wonderful guy. One of the most giving, caring, sweet guys I've ever met in my life. I ran into him once he was in my mom had had a minor stroke and was in Santa Monica hospital and he brought a friend in and I saw him and I said, Hey man. He's like, Oh, Hey, Hey, how you doing? I said, good. He goes, what you doing? I said, my mom's here. And he goes, your mom. Go, yeah. She's a big fan of your show. And he goes, where is she? He goes in there and I go, mom. <laughs> and Look. she's like, Oh my God. You know, <laughs> and he didn't have to do that. You know, he's a good guy. Now I, I, I cause I always look and you're on an episode of cold case. Mm-hmm. Now I watch so funny. Cause I always say one time I was watching, there's a marathon. My girlfriend went upstairs to go to bed. And they always just play it. And I, I'm watching one episode, and it's Reed Diamond, and he kills someone. Then it's Robert Romanus, and he kills someone. I'm going, all these past guests have killed someone. Right. Did you kill anybody on cold case? No. Oh. I was the witness protection. I was in witness protection, and the marshal's office was trying to, the guy that went to prison, all of a sudden, his case got thrown out, and he was being released, and they wanted to retry him, and they wanted me to go back. And they started trying to press me, and I got scared and ran. Now, on some of your other shows, like Person of Interest... Oh, wait a minute. Cold Case. Wait a minute. Oh, Cold- oh no, no. Yeah, Cold Case, I did kill. I oh, killed my wife. No, I'm thinking oh, of uh, the other show with Anthony LaPaglia. Oh, uh, without, uh, without... Without a trace. trace. Okay, so you did kill... All right, good. He killed- and, See, that- I did. I blew, I, up, love- I blew my wife up. I put a bomb in a <laughs> like a thing of Tide, you know, and I said, oh, yeah, honey, it's on the porch, and she went and picked it up in the bomb and blew her up, so... <laughs> I don't know why I did that. I don't remember, but obviously yeah, I, I always, didn't like I always, her very much. I always love when people. I'm like, yeah, you can. Now, have you been killed a lot on screen? Yeah. Okay. Now, what? this year, this year alone, I died on two different series. Which one? Which one? Under the Dome. Okay. Because I was doing Devious Maids in Atlanta, and I, you know, they had to. I, they, they really had to do something Under the Dome because they kept playing it. You know, get some answers. So the first episode, uh, the girl who's come back to life 18 years later, my my illegitimate daughter strangles me as i come out of the lake with the egg okay um so i'm like i'll do anything for you baby and she goes i'm not your baby and uh, grabs me by the throat and i you know croak then on devious maids i died in the last episode i got shot right in the chest and they really i i agreed to come back because i did the first season the second season mark cherry got rid of seven of us two households it was about maids in beverly hills and and then they called up and said would you and brianna brown come back for one season and i said one season yeah 
because it's I, I've been in I did 42 in Atlanta I did the first season of Devious Maids there then I had a year off did a bunch of really interesting stuff under the dome and I produced two films and then I went back for a third season when they shot me Jill's Marini shot me who's my buddy <laughs> and I'm laying there and I I'm you know I'm thinking well I'm, I'm dead but I keep my eyes closed and then I hear the producers the director and the director goes uh Brett can you keep your eyes open and I went Oh, so you really want me fucking dead? <laughs> there is no thing. Like, it was the finale of the season. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've died a lot. I died in uh, Criminal Minds, that great death scene where they shot me and I got to go through that wall. What is your, what is your, what is that your best death scene? Or what, I mean, have, is that, what do you think is your best death scene? That was the most fun one. I probably, I think if I remember. What made it so fun? Just because they squib you up and you get shot? Well, I was get... squibbed and, you know, I was working with stunt people. So th- what they did though, was they had a wall that I was supposed to fall, you know, like I come back and I have a, uh, what do you, uh, like a Mac 10 gun. And so I come around and there's the FBI agent and I, and I see her and the other FBI agent comes behind her and he shoots me cause she freezes cause I'm getting ready to shoot her. And so when he, when the squibs go off, I fell into the wall we did it like five times. The last time I did it, I hit it so hard and it was just braced, you know, it was it was just a flat basically. I went through it and the wall collapsed and like hung on me. And I don't know if they use that, but when I got <laughs> shot, I did this, like uh, the, the, the instinct is to pull the trigger. So I just, went, you know, and died falling back with the gun blazing, which was fun. No, yeah. I mean, it must be fun. It's like, you know, cause it's just, everyone sits. It's you everything play, you, you did when you were a kid, when you played yeah, Cowboys, Cowboys and Indians, Indians. We except that we have real special effects. <laughs> I mean, if you watch children, that's the great thing about acting. If you watch children playing Cowboys and Indians, and when you see a kid get shot and he dies, mm. it's really, it's like, you know, I say to acting students, watch that, the purity of that. You know, they don't think about it. Because you go for it. You're a kid. Yeah. It's, like anything. You're like, it's like anything you do Absolutely. when you're a kid. You play something. Now, person of interest, you got, now, did you know you'd be recurring on that when that you got cast on that? Or do you know sometimes when you can recur? Or do you yeah, go- they tell you. They tell you when you audition, and and that was an interesting situation. I just come back from a Dark Knight Rises, and I got in another situation. Where my agent said, my manager actually, Steve said, "There's a show. Do you know someone on this show?" And I was like, "Well," and I knew uh, uh, Richard Lewis, who had, I'd done his second directing job in Toronto years and years and years ago. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents, and it's about vampires. And I uh, said, "Well, no," I, and I don't think so. And then I get the job. And they're shocked. They're like, oh, because they, they they wanted to hire people in New York. So I fly out. I have a costume fitting. They're shooting at Union Square, big giant trailer. I walk up, and they're fitting somebody. And there's this guy standing there. And I go, oh. And they go, oh, well, I'll just step outside and have smoke or something. I'm standing outside, and this guy, who's my height, looks kind of like me, stands out. And he goes, hey, how you doing? He's got kind of a Chicago accent. And I go, I'm good, man. I'm a little tired, a little jet lagged. I just came back from, you know, uh, Europe. I was shooting Dark Knight Rise. He goes, I know you're working with my brother. I said, your brother? He goes, Chris. He goes, Chris Nolan? And I went, oh, okay, hold on. He's British and you're like from Chicago or something? And he's like, yeah, we have two parents, one American, one English. And he goes, I, I co-wrote all the, 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 you know, the Batman movies with him. And that's why I think he saw me in the dailies. Because he said, I saw you in the dailies and I thought you were perfect for this. So that's how that happened. Um, but I knew going in, the first episode is all flashbacks and that at the end, you know, I'm the founder. You know, I'm the money guy. Right. And I used to be a programmer, but not like Michael Emerson, who is probably one of the most brilliant actors I've ever worked with. I got to work with him on Lost, and I'm working with him on this. So it's really like home, old home week. And I just adore him. And I think he really enjoys when I come on because he gets to then have a relationship with someone. You know, he had his, his wife, who plays his fiance on the show in real life. Um, you know, he had some good stuff with her. But him and I get to, to actually talk. And most of the time he's telling, you know, Reese where to go and what to do. And, oh, right. my God, you know, but this. So I think he enjoys that. And I did an episode this year. I mean, I just came back from London to Scotland, had to fly straight to New York to do an episode. I think it was the first episode of the season. Um, so you kind of know, you know, they tell you, but I didn't know I was going to recur as much as I do on that show. That must be a great little feeling. Though. You're like, oh, good. You need to come back. And it's a yeah. fun time. What's great is I, you know, I did one episode last season and I did this episode and what's great is, you know, you show up and like the drivers, and I mean, they, they put me in Williamsburg and normally stay in Manhattan. They put me in Williamsburg because it's close to the studio and I, and I had to have fitting and they were shooting like a block from where the hotel was, the McCarran. So I walk over and all the drivers, hey, Brett, how you doing? Hey, it's good to see you. Welcome back. Hey, it's nice day. Hey, you know, it's just like, ah, they remember me, now, but it is like a family. We so have a few minutes left. Uh, 
I want to get to you when you said you at 16 you died. Yeah. Now what happened? I was on a surf trip in Mexico for three months, and I was surfing a place called Puerto Escondido, which back then used to be called Mexican Pipeline. I was there two surfers, uh, a guy from Surfer Magazine, uh, Craig Peterson and Greg Carpenter, I think are their names. They were there, and they had they left that morning. They said, oh, it's gone flat because it had been about three or four foot, not big. And so we're playing gin on the beach, and there's a little rock crop outcropping there. And we're playing all of a sudden. I see something. I go, I swear I just saw a wave breaking. And they went, no, nah, it's probably a seagull. So we keep playing. All of a sudden I go, no, I just saw a wave cresting. <clears throat> so we ran around. It was about eight to ten foot. So we all grab our boards and run out. And they're all standing on the beach. And me and Rick, my buddy Dennis Church's older brother, we said, we're going to paddle out. So he and I paddle out. And we catch like two or three waves. You know, it's good size. It's like, you know, five foot overhead. Um, and then I catch a wave. I kick out. And I see Rick. And it's just a really steep, hairy, barreling wave. And he's ripping this wave apart. And I look out. And I see a mountain moving towards me. Like, I've never seen anything like it in my life. And I start paddling and screaming Rick's name. And I realize this was the beginning of the swell. And I make it through the first wave, which was probably 20 foot. I punch just through the lip, come around, get to the second wave, make it up halfway, and it breaks. And I jump off my board. I'm paddling. I push down trying to get to the trough. Because you get punched and You get punched once and then pushed out the back. Didn't make it. And I got hammered by two different sets of waves. And I came up and I saw um, Rick was in a rip, I thought. Because he was way outside. So I start, I got this adrenaline. I start swimming to him. My board's gone. And um, then I look on the beach and everything goes in slow motion. I see the guys running with their boards to the water. And I look back to Rick. He's gone. And then I look back in. I see Rick inside of me. I realize I'm the one in the rip. Another set coming. And I think the only way I'm going to survive this, because this is a blackwater rip. It goes for like half a mile because there's so much water that goes down on the beach. It has to go. It's like a river. I go, I'm either going to be tiger shark bait or I'm going to have to catch one of these waves. So I turn around and start swimming and try and body surf this 20-something foot wave. Don't make it. Get pitched. And I'm pounded by like this entire set. And I can't come up. Can't breathe. I finally give up. And the whole thing flashes before my eyes, my life, all the cliches you hear. But then when I really realized I was going to drown, the three things that hit my gut that made me go, oh, my God, I'm going to miss these so much was the smell of mown grass, the simplicity, the simplicity of all this is amazing. The smell of mown grass, the taste of my mother's salad, and the smell of my father cooking steaks on Saturday. And I let go. And then I was looking at myself floating in the water, and I was flying. And I was so joyous and happy. It's like everything was like, it was amazing. And the next thing I know, I wake up throwing up. This guy found me, saw my hair. I had long hair. Ripped. I weighed 160 pounds back then. Grabbed my hair, yanked me out of the water, slammed me on the deck of his board. He went to the last place he saw me. And, and that, I started vomiting. And I didn't talk for 20 minutes. Didn't open my eyes for 20 minutes. But at that point, that's where I've had different opinions with people when they talk about religion. Because I go, I kind of met him. Right. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> He was so merciful and, and loving. I don't think God cares about all this shit that's in the Bible. I don't think he cares about it. You're a good person and that you care and that you try and help people and that you have a good heart. See, now that is the way to pretty much end our show. That's a story. <laughs> now, I want to thank you for coming on. Great stories. And, uh, thank and, uh, you. Now, now, are you on Twitter? No, I got off of Twitter because I was hacked. Oh, you were hacked? There, there, was, did, some, there was a dip. Isn't that... Was Some really different. nasty stuff happened. Okay. But now, now, how can people follow you? you I'm on Facebook. Okay. I'm on Instagram. I'm and you're Brett Cullen on Instagram? Instagram, I'm Bretty Cullen. My daughter set it up years ago when she got it. and Because she said, you're Bretty Cullen. And I went, all right. Because I want to follow her in right. case see what she was up to. So it's Bretty with a Y, Cullen. Okay. And um, you know, you'll see pictures of me surfing, pictures of me on location, stuff I post there for my family and stuff. Uh, not too much personal stuff because my wife didn't want that. No, I so, thank you for coming on. This is great. Thank you for having well, me. Glad you made the trip out. I know you came from Venice, and it rained, so the traffic sucks. I know. So go follow him, Brady Cullen at Instagram. Also, uh, follow me on Instagram, Cooper Talk One. I do a lot of the uh, the low the low sodium recipes I cook. I show pictures from my cookbook at uh, stopthesalt.com. Go buy my cookbook. It's uh, got 120 recipes. Ever since I had my health scare, I changed my diet. So do that, and also follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. My website, coopertalk.net. I have over 415 episodes. And you can email me there, cooper at coopertalk.net. 
I'll always respond for you. Tell me what guests you want to hear, and I will try my hardest to get them. Sometimes I do. Brett was busy. I, he was, goes out of town. A lot of these actors go out of town, but they, if they come around, <laughs> it's great. Get to work. So, yeah, so follow Brady Colin, Colin at Instagram. Cooper Talk 1. Cooper Talk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. Talk to you guys next week.